Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Selah Fellowship podcast for our Sunday services. Please open your Bibles as we dive into our study this morning. You can open up your Bible app to Luke chapter 8. That's where we're going to pick up our study this morning. Um, As you turn there, let me set the stage for our study this morning. The book of James, in the first chapter, um, beginning in verse 21, James wrote, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and reserve with meanness the implanted word of God which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man or a woman, observing his or her natural face in the mirror, For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so the book of James talks about how we as believers are to interact in the Word of God. We could quickly just exegete that passage to say, first and foremost, you can't be a hearer or a doer of God's Word if you're not in God's Word, right? If you're not putting yourself in a position to hear it, to study it, to read it. You can't in any way know what it's called you to. And then it says in the book of James that hearing or knowing about or even being able to recite verses from the Bible aren't the most, isn't the most important part of it, but rather applying that word to your life and living it, being a doer of the word and not just a hearer. And so as we get into the book of Luke this morning, that really sets the stage for the part of chapter 8 we'll be looking at because the central focus is truly the word, whether that be the written word the gospel, or the spoken word of Jesus in these scenes, the central focus of this section of Scripture this morning is the Word. And so, as we study the Word, let's not just study it to hear it, but study it to say, Lord, how am I to interact with your word? How am I to respond to your word? What is it that your word 
is sharing with me this morning that I can apply to my life because we can exhaust ourselves to understand what the Word of God says. But if we don't apply it, then what's the use? It's knowledge, but not life-changing. Amen? Amen? Thank you. So let's pray and dive in. Father, we thank you for your word that we come to study this morning. We ask that you would illumine our hearts, our ears, our minds, our eyes to see and receive and hear what you have for us this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And so we continue out of chapter 7, and Jesus is going through the countryside, city to city, as that itinerant preacher going forth, sharing the gospel with all that he would come across. And it's interesting that Luke calls out that not only were the twelve with him, but then he actually singles out that there were women in Jesus's entourage. And you might ask the question, what's the big deal? Why did he single out these women? And I think the point um, that Luke is trying to make here in a subtle way is how countercultural Jesus's ministry is in that it embraces not just men, but also women. Remember, this was a very patriarchal society. If you were a teacher of God's law, you didn't have women in your posse, and they weren't following after you as disciples. And so I think this was loose way of identifying how countercultural this ministry of Jesus, how countercultural the gospel was, in that not only were the disciples made up of men and here the twelve that he had called as apostles, but also women, whether that be women like Mary Magdalene who were um, who was possessed, as it says here, by seven demons, seven being that number of 
fullness and completion. In other words, she was fully inhabited by the enemy. Or in the case of Joanna, who was the wife of Herod's steward, the steward was one of the most trusted men of a Roman leader. He was over the affairs of his personal household and the finances for him. So you can see the breadth of people that Jesus is ministering to, even within the women, from one who had been cast aside and was so wrapped up in a life that was overrun by the enemy. Or, in the world's eyes, a woman who had the cat by the tail, being the wife of the steward of Herod. And so the breadth of Jesus' ministry was incredible. And we'll circle back on one more point there, but we're going to continue on in the passage. And when a great multitude had gathered, they had come to him from every city, And he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow a seed. And as he sowed, some fell fell by the wayside. And it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock. And as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now before we continue on, Many of us have heard this passage read, have heard this passage taught. So we understand kind of the underlying meaning of this parable, this true-to-life example that Jesus gave here. But consider if you were there in that day, not having the book of Luke in front of you, with the ability to read a few verses later as Jesus interprets this parable. You would have heard this, and you might be like the disciples who then respond in verse 9. Then his disciples asked him, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And so we get a little insight into the mindset of Jesus. If you are a true seeker of truth, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. You won't take what I say at surface level. In other words, 
as I speak, you're going to know I'm not just saying words to hear myself and to hear my voice, but there's meaning, there's depth of understanding that comes from my word. And so as I launched out on this story, what the Bible calls a parable, a parable simply being a true-to-life story. In other words, something they would have understood. They were a culture wrapped around agriculture. They understood what it meant to sow seed. They understood that seed that hits the rocky soil that birds would sweep in and eat that seed. They understand soil that has no depth or, or the fact that if you don't cultivate the field rightly, that weeds can creep in and choke out the growth of the seed. And they understand the crop that comes when the soil is good and the seed is implanted and the fruit that is born as a result of that seed being planted in good soil. This wouldn't have been something they say, what the heck are you talking about? You know, we see it even here in the valley. If you don't believe me, just go to... Lowe's after the service, buy yourself some grass seed and go throw it on your front lawn and just wait a little bit and you're going to have a bunch of birds sitting on your front yard because something within them, they must have a keen sense of smell or something. They know their seed there and they're coming and diving in to get that seed, right? So this isn't a story they wouldn't have understood, but Jesus isn't telling a story just to tell a story. He's telling a story to teach truth. And so he says, to you it has been given the ability to understand the things of the kingdom of God. In other words, you know me. You know I'm not here wasting my breath on sharing these words. I'm challenging you to look beyond the surface of this story to find the nuggets of truth in there. But it also, a parable differentiates true seekers of God from those who aren't true seekers of God. Because there's going to be a group of people that hear this story, much like today, and say, that guy's whacked out. He's walking around with these people, and he's telling stories. I mean, I came to hear the truth of God. Why is he talking to me? about sowing seed. And so, much like today, as we go forth to share the gospel on behalf of Jesus, many times we encounter different types of people, right? And some of those would look at you and say, when did you check your brains at the door? 
When did you check out? How can you believe this stuff you're saying? And what they're revealing is that there are people who won't look beyond the surface to find the depth of truth and meaning there. And so, as we dive in now to Jesus' explanation, let me just give you a tidbit of information. I've heard teachings on this passage that run the gamut of interpretation. I'm a simple guy. If Jesus tells me what it means, I'm going to believe him. Right? And so I sometimes laugh when I hear these off-the-wall teachings from this passage because I just want to say, if you'd have just kept reading, (laughs) Jesus actually is going to tell you what he means within the story. And so picking up in verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit. To maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And so Jesus gives us the interpretation of this parable. Let me just say that we've heard this parable called the parable of the sower. I happen to, for me, I've renamed it the parable of the soils because the parable's not about the sower at all. It's about the soil and how it receives the seed, in this case and in the interpretation The soil is our hearts. The seed is the gospel. And the four conditions or conditions of heart that we can encounter in this world in relation to the word of God and its effect in a person's life. Are you with me? So real quickly, the four people that we see addressed here are people who are closed off, in the first case, to the Word of God. Their hearts are like stone or hard-packed soil. In that day, they didn't have all the equipment we have, 
And so as they sowed their field, they had walkways that they would walk down. And as the fields grew, they would continue on those walkways and it would get packed down, hard packed. And so as the sower sowing the seed, as we're sharing the gospel, there's going to be times where that word comes up against a heart that is not receptive. It just sits right there on the surface, and the enemy is right there to snatch that seed away quickly, lest it find some root in that heart and begin to have change in that person's life. The second soil is that soil that is rocky, or as it says in Matthew, has no depth to it. But there's enough soil there to find root and initially spring up. It's amazing. I've lived in um, two fairly hot places in my life. I've lived in Las Vegas for 16 years. Yes, there are Christians in Vegas. (laughs) And I lived in Phoenix for a couple of years. And... um, let me just say, you get a little toasty at times in those two places. But the amazing thing is, is that there are still things in the desert that grow in the springtime. And you'll watch it. And um, Phoenix is a bit more of what I call a green desert Vegas is a green desert for about two weeks, right? The spring rolls in, you get the one day of rain every year you get, and pretty soon you look at it, the whole desert, and it's turning green as those little weeds and plants or whatever they are that have been germinating, found a little water and a little warmth, and they spring up. But just give it a week when the temperature goes from 85 to 100, and all of a sudden the desert's brown again. Why is that? Because sitting below the surface of that desert is hard-packed rock. And in Vegas especially, there's this thing called caliche. It's harder than concrete. It's compressed rock. And so there's no depth of soil, but there's enough soil in the right condition for the seed to germinate and spring up, but once the heat sweeps in, all the plants wither and die, right? To keep grass in Vegas and trees alive, let me just say, you're constantly watering. 
otherwise everything would die there. So there's a hard condition where I know my life isn't what it should be, and all of a sudden I hear some of God's truth, and for an instant it springs up and it becomes green in my life. Only when the trials and temptations of life come, it fades away, and I'm right back in the state I was before I received it. The third soil is that soil that has thorns and bushes, and the seed is uh, cast um, some feet. Seed falls in there, and it springs up. But because of the fact that the thorns and bushes are sucking nutrients, that the season needs, it gets choked out and um, it doesn't bear fruit. In both Vegas and, and um, in Phoenix, we had these trees. They were, in essence, fruit trees, but they were fruitless. They were modified to be fruitless. I don't know why you do it. You know, they would in the spring get their blossoms and in a normal environment, those blossoms would turn to fruit, but um, not with these trees. It would turn to these. We had a fruitless plum tree. It was beautiful in the spring. And the blossoms would come and the blossoms would go away. And they'd leave these tiny little, I guess, plums. But there was no real fruit. They had genetically modified them to choke out the fruit. So that fruit wouldn't grow on these trees. Not sure why you want those trees. I didn't plant it. The builder did. Um, but I often think about that. I also think about how um, other trees, like pine trees, typically nothing can grow underneath them because of the acid that is in the sap from the pine tree and the needles, they choke out any growth underneath them. And so often, as it says here, we encounter people who do receive the word of God, but we see no fruit being produced through their life because the cares and pleasures and riches, as the word of God says, of this world, it chokes out the effectiveness of that word to spring forth in fruit. Um, those three areas are three areas that we also have to be concerned with. There are cares of this world. Cares aren't necessarily sin. As many of you sit here this morning, you have bills that you're going to have to pay. You have cars that need repairing. 
Yesterday, I was pulling a filter out of our washing machine. You know, not let alone yesterday, I got a phone call from my mom. My uncle was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and he's been given two to eight months to live. My aunt has um, brain cancer, and obviously her time is limited. And these are the cares of this world that come at us. And given the opportunity, the desire to choke out the effectiveness of the Word of God in our life as we would live it out. Cares aren't sins, but cares can be a burden. You have the pleasures of this life, the things that life here in the U.S. offer. And again, some would be sin, but not all are sin. And you have the riches. And of course, so much in the Bible talks about riches and the trusting of riches in a life. And these are the things that many times choke out the effectiveness of the Word of God in a person's life. And then lastly, of course, we all understand there's a good soil that's receptive to the Word of God. It's not the hard-packed soil. It's not rocky soil. It has depth. It's not wrapped up in the cares, pleasures, and riches of this world. It deals with those, but is not consumed with them or controlled by them. And the Word of God finds root in that kind of soil and springs up into much fruit again in an alternate passage, some tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold, as the good soil produces crops. And these soils represent, when we step outside that door, people we're going to encounter. And they define the work that we need to do on behalf of the Lord such that we are able to share the gospel. I mean, when you come across hard-packed soil, all you can do is break out the hoe and start chipping away slowly to somehow break up that fallow ground. You need to pour the water of God's love uh, on that soil and allow for it to be softened for depths of soil. We could go through and understand there's work to be done to get that soil to a place where it can fully receive the Word of God. But there's also a greater meaning for us this morning when it comes to this parable, and that is our hearts. Because the reality is, at any given point, we can find our hearts in one of these conditions. If we're going to be honest before the Lord, there's been times where the Lord's come along and said, hey, you have hardness of heart in this area. 
or there's no depth in this area of your life, or you're being controlled by the cares, concerns, riches, and pleasures that this world has to offer. And it's choking out the effectiveness of the Word of God in your life. And only you know before the Lord where your heart is. And you could be sitting here this morning saying, I've got great soil, man. But the reality is, is we always need to be on guard. Because I got to tell you, yesterday when I got that phone call from my mom, um, well, let me back up. On Friday, on my way home, I stopped at the store because I'm a coffee drinker, if you don't know that. And I do like a little half and half in my coffee, and there was none at home. So I stopped at Safeway to grab half and half on my way home. I have this incredible vehicle the Lord's given my family. It's a 1999 Ford Expedition. Well over 200,000 miles. We got it brand new. I know that's shocking. Nobody owns cars for like 20 years anymore. It's like the average person owns it for five. About the time the loan runs out, I trade it in. Guys like Jeremy, maybe a year and a half at the most. It's like, buy a car, repair it, flip it, buy another one. How many cars have you owned like? 87? How old are you? 33. So he could legally own and drive a car depending on where you're from, for about, oh, 17 years or so. He's owned 87 cars. You do the math, how many cars he's owned per year, right? But when you get a car that's 20 years old, like us old people, it has, it begins to break down a little bit. And so the back passenger driver's side door doesn't lock with the automatic locker. I get out of the car. I start to walk into the store. I realize, oops, I didn't lock the back door. Um, my computer's in there. I know it's Montana, but I don't trust anyone. Just Jesus in them. And so I spin around to go back, and I don't spin around. Next thing I know, I'm flat on the ground in the parking lot. Girl comes over, helps me up. I'm sure th she thinks I've been drinking. <laughs> It was late enough in the day. I go back, lock the car. And I'm like, really, Lord? 
I mean, I looked at her, I said, don't worry, this is my life. I fall down a lot. But really, Lord? Then I get the phone call from my mom on Saturday. I'm like, really, Lord? And I got to tell you, it, it's a shock. The cares of this world can overrun the truth of God's Word in your life. It's just reality. That's not meant judgmentally or critically toward you as a person, as a believer in the Lord. But we have to be honest and know there are times where hardness of heart can creep in. There's times where the depth of our soil isn't what it should be. There's times where the cares and pleasures and riches of this world come in and they fight to choke out the effectiveness of the Word of God in our life. And we all long for those times when the soil is exactly what it should be. And we love the experience of fruit being produced through our life. But we have to purposefully interact and hear and receive and let the Word of God impact us in our lives. Because short of that, we're selling Jesus short. It's Jesus on our terms, not on his. Man, that was point one of eight. She, who's ever coming next, I have notes for you for next week. No one, when his little lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Now, that passage can be lifted out and taught separately from the immediate context, which is the parable of the soils. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is that we need to be careful how we hear. We need to be hearing to receive, to receive, to put into practice, such that that word would have effect in our lives. And when we do that, when we receive of the Lord and we hear from him and we put into practice and we have, to him who has, Jesus will give more. But to him who supposes he has, but he doesn't really have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. And we've all experienced that. We are really good at judging ourselves by our intentions 
in our walk with Jesus, but even there are times when our intentions don't line up with our actions and how we're living our lives. And even though we can deceive ourselves for a season, there comes that day when we wake up and we go, oh, I'm not all that at all. In fact, I'm so much further behind than I was before I started this slide. And so Jesus is saying, look, there's a response to the word. First off, if we truly received it, we'll be a light that shines forth. But be careful how you're hearing the word, hearing with the purpose of putting it into practice Spurgeon said this on this section of scripture when it comes to hearing the word. We should hear attentively to retain. We should hear believingly that we might obey. We should hear candidly that we can walk in honestly. We should hear devoutly that our lives would be lived out sincerely. We should hear earnestly so that we can live lives of spirituality. We should hear feelingly that we would be sensitive to the truth of God's word. And we should hear gratefully, prayerfully putting that word to practice in our lives. And so there's growth in the word. To him who has, possesses, and uses, more will be given. Let's read as quickly as I can. Then his mothers and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Wow, you might read that and go, that was pretty harsh. Like, if my mom and dad and sister were outside and Austin comes walking in, I wouldn't, first off, I'd be shocked because I'm not expecting them. But he comes walking in and says, Hey, your mom, dad, and sister are outside looking for you. <clears throat> you might be off-put if I looked at him and said, Who are my mother, father, and sister but these people who want to hear and live? The word of God, they're my brother, my sister, my mother and father. You might look at me and go, you must not like your parents and your sister very much. But please understand, it wasn't Jesus dissing on his family. It was Jesus creating a higher order of relationship. I wish I had an hour 
literally not packed this with you because God's been doing a huge work in my life and my understanding of this. But let's also understand that we live horizontal life. And in that horizontal life, our relationships, moms, dads, kids, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends. And there's an important point that Jesus is making that I'm going to give to you, and I really would love for you to go meditate on that this next week. And that's this one truth. There's a higher order of relationship than the horizontal relationships we have on earth. Even with my wife, she's my wife on earth and in heaven in the sense of Jesus is in full agreement. Now our husband and wife, she may not be out of it. But before she's my wife, and my best friend. She's my sister in the Lord. The fact that I keep that vertical understanding of who she is in my life dictates how I live out in my relationship with her in the horizontal plane of wife and friend. But if I let the horizontal relationship be the utmost of relationship, ultimately I will find justification in disrespecting her, mistreating her, being angry with her, and sinning on my anger because I've forgotten there's a higher order of relationship. The lives we live as Christians are not about the relationship in this horizontal plane. It's about drawing others to a vertical relationship with Jesus such that they would be my brother and my sister. And when they become my brother and sister, I'm not free then to look at Dylan as my friend first anymore. He's my brother first, and then my friend. And that frames that relationship in a way that helps me interact with him in a way that glorifies God. Do you understand what I'm trying to communicate there? I hope I'm getting that across because literally I could take an hour and you're free to come to my office. I'd be glad to share with you, but I don't have time with the communion this morning. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. 
And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. They came to him and awoke him and said, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Let me read the next passage, because they go together and time is short. Then they sailed to the country of the gatherings, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there he met him, a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Side note, even the demons acknowledge him as the Son of the Most High God. Why is it we have such an issue? Just a thought. I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it often seized him, and he was kept under God, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Then Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that they would not command them to go into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them, and devil's hands came about. That's not in the text. Then the demons went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened, came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the gatherings asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and got in the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city 
what great things Jesus had done for him. So we began this morning talking about the word. And in the parable, we have an understanding that we need to hear, receive, and be impacted by the word of God. We need to consider the condition of our heart and allow God to have a work there. We know from the next section that there's growth that has to happen. And as we seek the Lord in earnestness and in sincerity, what we have he will add to. But if we don't seek him earnestly, even what we have would be taken away or diminished in our life. We understand that Jesus is creating a new family and a new relationship structure for those who know him. And here, in these two passages, two truths that I want to draw out. Um, By the way, these two scenes, incredible scenes. Go home and read them and allow for the Lord to minister to you because... They're scenes of real life. I mean, consider the apostles in the boat thinking they're going to drown all while God is sleeping in the front of the boat. It's like, don't you care that we're dying here, Jesus? And Jesus is like, be still and calm. And everything goes away. But two truths that I want to draw from these two stories as we head to a clothing. First off, there's the faithfulness of God's word in your life. You see, Jesus asked the apostles, where's your faith? Because he'd already told them, let's go over to the other side. He didn't promise them it'd be a love boat cruise. He just promised them in his statement they would get to the other side. I don't know where you're at in your life, but as believers, listen to me. I've said it before. I want to remind you. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what you've had to endure or what you're enduring right now. But for the believer, this is as bad as it gets. This is as bad as it gets. Jesus said there's another side. And there will be a day either individually or corporately comes and takes us home. And he will complete that work in our lives. And he will see us arrive at the other side. Whether that's the other side of a storm in the here and now, or the storms that life can bring us, he will see us through. I needed this passage yesterday. I needed to be reminded that no matter what life brings to you, Jesus will see you to the other side. Always. He's faithful. 
to see you through. And the next point is the power of the Word of God in a person's life. Consider that the power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you through the Holy Spirit. And that power ceased a storm and called out demons from an individual. He has power over the natural and the unnatural and everything in between. Jesus' word has power to change a life. Right? And so we see the faithfulness of his word and the power of his word. And as the worship team comes up and the ushers come forward, two quick closing points. As we study this area of scripture, we see the effect of God's word. And that effect is in the discerning, revealing, and changing of hearts. The basis for living in truth is found in his word. The word helps us to grow our faith in our walk with him. It builds us a spiritual family, provides strength and safety and security in the storms of life, gives freedom from and power over the work of the enemy, and establishes a testimony in your life to God's glory. And to make it even more personal, the result that God desires the word to have in our lives is that it would be a mirror that we can look into to allow it to speak into our lives things that need to change and show us areas of our life for growth. It establishes us in our faith. It can give us confidence Encouraged to overcome the impossibles of life. It centers our heart on Christ, produces fruit for our labor, works out that testimony in and through our life, and provokes in us a desire to share the Word of God with others. And the last thing it does, backing up, the opening verses of chapter 8 is this one foundational truth. The Word of God given place in our life changes our world view. We can never see life in the same way again when we encounter the Word of God being alive and active and working in our lives. I could ask past interns to come up and give testimony as the Word of God has worked in their life and send them out around the world how it is they can never look at life the same way again because God took His truth 
implanted it in their heart and changed the way they see the world. Today, they see it more through the eyes of Jesus than when they began. The Word of God changes us from the inside out. Amen? Thank you for joining us as we studied the Word this morning. If you would like more information about Salem Fellowship, please visit us on the web at salemfellowship.org. While you are there, feel free to check out some of our other messages and past book studies. Thank you again, and God bless.